0: Thank you very much, and it's a great honor for me to be addressing you here. India, for me, is now emerging. I don't talk about Narendra Modi, your politics, but intellectually. You are, I think, a country of the future. You already have the best computer programmers, you have mathematical geniuses and so on. So what I like in India is that there was this backward image, India agriculture and so on. No, you will now hopefully jump over this boring industrial modernity and jump directly into today's digital scientific universe. I wish you all the best. And especially my favorite state in India is Kerala. I really like it there. I don't like New Delhi, it's bad air and so on, polluted, but I can imagine living in Kerala. So not to lose time. Uh, I will try to Indicate how I view the world today. I will do it on purpose in a slightly provocative way because I want to open the space for you to counter attack me. Maybe some of my views are Euro- too Eurocentric, and there will be some theoretical parts where they are not just popular talk. Please listen to them carefully. So let me begin again with great gratitude to you. What makes me really depressed today is that a strong part of the West, Western left, is more or less openly supporting Russia, a state which acts as an empire attacking a neighboring state. A state which justifies its acts by an open appeal to neo-fascist idea. Russia supports extreme right in Western Europe, from Marine Le Pen in France to alternative for Germany in Germany. And this bankruptcy of the left is not limited to Europe. The newly re-elected president of Brazil, Lula, recently said that the Ukrainian president Zelensky and his Russian counterpart Putin bear equal responsibility for the war in Ukraine. I disagree. The standard argument of the third, so-called third world neutral countries is that in Ukraine, we are dealing with a local conflict which pales compared to colonial horrors or to more recent events like the United States occupation of Iraq. I think this argument misses the point. With the Russian attack on Ukraine, we got a brutal colonial war in Europe itself and solidarity should be with the colonized. If some third world states play neutrality, They forfeit the right to complain about the horrors of colonization anywhere. It's the same with the Palestinian resistance to Israeli colonization of the West Bank. If you really want to fight anti-Semitism, you also have to support Palestinian resistance to what... Sorry. Palestinian resistance to what Israel is doing on the West Bank. So how did we find ourselves in this mess? We live in an era of unholy alliances, a combination of ideological elements which violate the standard opposition of left and right. Let me just mention one of the saddest recent examples. At the end of February, now a month ago, the Parliament of Uganda in Africa debated a further strengthening of the anti-gay legislation. The most radical proponents demanded death penalty or at least life imprisonment for those caught in a homosexual acts. Anita Amonk, Speaker of the Parliament, said in the debate, you are either with us or you are with the Western world. So, feminist, gay, trans struggles are denounced as an instrument of Western ideological colonialism, used to undermine African identity. And this immediately brings us to another unholy alliance. Russia, with its orthodox Christian fundamentalism, presents itself as an ally of third world nations fighting colonialism. A fact that doesn't prevent parts of the Western left to lean towards Russia in its aggression on Ukraine. When Sarah Wagenknecht, the most popular representative of Die Linke, the German leftist party, organized a big meeting for peace in Dresden, again a month ago in February, calling for the end of helping Ukraine with arms, Björn Höcke, one of the leading members of the extreme right, Alternative for Germany, present at the meeting, shouted at her, please come to us, calling her to change her party affiliation. And the public applauded him. How can this happen? This unholy alliance of extreme left and really extreme proto-fascist right. One of the causes, just a small suggestion, is that the leftist intellectuals always prefer what I call a symptomal reading of an ideology. Things are not what they claim to be. The truth is the opposite. You know all these standard Marxist thesis: Freedom in the market is not real freedom. It's the form of exploitation or domination. Universal human rights mask, imperialist exploitation, and so on. So what does then the left do when it confronts a reactionary agent, which is what it claims to be, where there is no need for deep symptomal analysis? Here the left gets perplexed. What if at some deeper level we are even worse than our reactionary Opponent. You know, that's always the temptation of the left. You have a tyranny, but then a leftist will come and say, but in a subtle sense, our false Western democracy is even a worse tyranny. I admit that there is a moment of truth in this, but it doesn't work as a general approach. Next thing, now I go a little bit more into theory. Leftists, pacifists, present their position as an urgent call for awakening in order to avoid the threat of global war and destruction. But their awakening, I think, is a wrong one. It is a way to continue to sleep. Remember that totalitarian fascist powers also always use this term awakening. The Nazi call in Germany in 1933 was also Deutschland Erwache, Germany Awaken. Now I will make a detour through a very interesting dream reported by Freud to clarify what I mean. One of Freud's patients dreamt, uh, uh, he was a father whose son died in an accident, Uh, and the father fell asleep while keeping the guard on his son's coffin and he had a dream in this dream his dead son appears to him pronouncing the terrible appeal father can't you see the time burning then the father awakens and he discovers that the cloth on the son's coffin caught fire since one of the burning candles fell down. So why did the father awaken? Was it because the smell of the smoke got too strong so that it was no longer possible to prolong the sleep by way of including it into the improvised dream? You know, this is the usual strategy. You sleep, a phone rings, and to prolong your sleep, you... begin to dream about the phone ringing, so that it becomes part of the dream you don't have to awaken? No. There is a much more radical reading. It was not the intrusion of the signal from external reality, smoke, that awakened the unfortunate father, but the unbearably traumatic character of what he encountered in his dream, the father literally awakened so that he could go on dreaming. The scenario was the following one. When his sleep was disturbed by the smoke, the father constructed a dream which incorporated this disturbing element, smoke, fire. but What he confronted in the dream, the son, that son reproaching him, father, can't you see that I'm burning? And father felt himself terribly guilty because he was responsible for his son's death. This was too traumatic, what he encountered in the dream. So he awakened into reality in order to avoid the true trauma. And I think it is the same today in the West with quite a lot of what goes on in the so-called woke movement, political correctness and so on. They want to awaken us into the racist and sexist horrors precisely to enable us to go on sleeping, ignoring the true roots and depth of racial and sexual trauma. And it is, again, the same, I think, with the pacifists today who call for awakening. Their true goal is to allow us to continue our safe sleep and ignore the threat that the worldwide neoconservative backlash poses to our basic emancipatory values. So, of course, we are today in deep crisis. Three, four threats. Pandemic, which is for the time being over, war, global warming, and so on and so on. How should we react? In Germany, I moderately, not totally, support the stance of the Green Party, which not only advocates full support for Ukraine, but also proposes to use the ongoing oil and gas crisis as a unique opportunity to make our industries greener. The Greens that, does go in the exactly opposite direction with regard to the predominant Western politics, which struggles with the problem of how to help Ukraine while limiting the impact of this help on our established way of life, our comfortable still way of life. The German Greens party plan is to use the Ukrainian war in a positive way, not just as an obstacle, but as an incentive for a general reorientation of our economic and social life. Or as Joseph, Stieglitz, American leftist economist, put it clearly, a quote. It is a mistake to think that the war can be won with the peacetime economy. No country has ever prevailed in a serious war by leaving markets alone. Markets simply move too slowly for the kind of major structural changes that are required. Link to this is, I think, a positive thing that goes on now in Ukraine. I quote a recent report from some big media. People's desire for justice at home has not diminished with the war. If anything, it has got stronger, and rightly so, since most citizens are risking their lives to fight the genocidal threat posed by Russia. People have such a personal stake in Ukraine's future, they are more sensitive than ever about what kind of country we are becoming and how things should be after the war. So I hope that the ongoing anti-corruption campaign will grow into a more radical questioning about how things should be after the war. Should Ukraine Simply catch up with the Western liberal democracy and accept being economically colonized by Western corporations? Should it join the neoconservative backlash as Poland did? Or will Ukraine risk and try to resuscitate the old social? democratic dream. This should be, I think, a true act, not just to repel Russian aggression, but to use this aggression to set in motion a radical social transformation which is really needed. What do I mean by this? Even the Financial Times, the voice of big capital, declared Recently in an editorial that neoliberalism has to descend from the global scene since its time has passed. Capitalist dynamic more and more looks like a hamster running in the circle of its cage. So what is needed? The first thing is to learn to cross the red lines imposed by neoliberal ideologies. Today's capitalism can survive much more radical interventions than it may appear. Mariana Mazzucato pointed out that the same system, ours in the West, which constantly repeated the mantra that we cannot raise the taxes to fight global warming, was able to spend not billions, but trillions to combat the Omicron epidemic. You, you, you see, and or now to spend tr- billions for the time to help Ukraine. So the lesson of this is: don't believe the predominant ideology, which strain in a strange way inverts the terms of possible, impossible. We live in a world where we are dreaming about uh, uh, about uh, becoming a software, living eternally from one to another uh, uh, hardware, uh, uh, or that we, uh, we can replace our organs, whatever, get connected with computers. All this uh, traveling to space, all this is possible, but it's not possible, so they were telling us, to raise taxes for 1% to help the poor. No, it is possible to radically intervene in today's economy without ruining it. So we should begin by courageously strengthening what Peter Sloterdijk, my friend, who is even more conservative, called objective social democracy. By objective, he he doesn't mean social democratic parties, but social democratic values, which are inscribed already into entire state apparatus and uh, uh, accepted as common base. For example, in Scandinavian countries, I don't want to idealize them, but there, uh, uh, free education, healthcare, and so on, this is part of their life. doesn't matter who wins the elections. I think that this should be our first pressure. But this will not be enough. When confronted with new global crises, we will have to act fast, decisively, and globally. Simon Jenkins commented apropos the... NHS crisis, national health system, in the United Kingdom, and he said something very important, quote, the NHS crisis is historic. A war footing is the only way to deal with it. So we are left with today's emergency. Nothing diminishes the support and affection for frontline staff. Like soldiers in wartime, they are workers to whom people instinctively turn when all seems lost. Did you notice this expansion of war metaphoric to other spheres of life? Now, this will sound crazy, you will attack me, but I agree with it, because I think that to militarize our lives. And uh, I don't talk here about uh, uh, arms. I'm talking here about treating the situation in which we are as an emergency state, where we don't have time to trust the market, we have to act. Just imagine some new global warming, mega catastrophe, and so on and so on. You cannot leave to the market to resolve it. We have to act. Now, so uh, uh, for example, in Western Europe, things are approaching a catastrophe with the health, our health system. We claimed how we have the best healthcare system, except for everyone. Now, in my country, Slovenia, in Germany, in England, even you, if you have an emergency, heart attack, and so on, a couple of my friends died like that. You go to emergency, you have to wait outside for over 20 hours. So to cope with this ongoing crisis, from threats to our environment to other crises, we will need elements of what? As a provocation, I'm tempted to call war communism. Mobilization that will have to violate the usual market and political rules, the existing multi-party parliamentary system is not effective enough to cope with the crisis that beset us. We shouldn't fetishize multi-party parliamentary democracy. Friedrich Engels wrote in a letter to a fellow German social democrat, August Bebel, in 1884, something very interesting. Engels warned that pure democracy often becomes a slogan for counter-revolutionary reaction. A quote. At the moment of revolution, the entire reactionary mass will act as though they are Democrats. At all events, at all events, on the crucial day and the day after, they will act as though they were Democrats, end of quote. Does exactly this not, did exactly this not happen when an emancipatory movement in power gets too radical for the establishment? Remember Evo Morales in Bolivia. The coup against him was done, of course, on behalf of democracy. But what does this mean? How to act today? The most brutal and depressive fact of recent history is for me, what? The only recent case of a violent revolutionary crowd invading the seat of power. As it happened, as you know, on the 6th of January, 2021 in Washington, when the crowd of Trump supporters broke into the capital in an attempt to deny the result of democratic elections. They proclaimed elections were not legitimate, they were stolen, organized by corporate elites, and so on and so on. This was up to a point even true. No wonder that there was a mix of fascination and horror present in the left liberal reaction to the protesters breaking into the capital. Many of my leftist friends said, but look, this was wonderful. Thousands of ordinary people breaking into capital, the sacred seat of power. It was a carnival, a joyful event. They, I noticed in their reaction a little bit of envy and fascination, like, my God, we should be doing this. And what are we getting now? is uh, uh, riding on this false, rightist, populist way is Elon Musk, which is a rightist establishment version of Julian Assange. Musk is now releasing so-called Twitter files. In a way, similar to the popular protests in the past, transforming themselves into the Trumpian attack on the Congress. We move from Julian Assange to Elon Musk. Here is how one of Musk's supporters comments on his work. A quote. Statues torn down, humiliating renunciations of thought, crimes, deal, and fake. Marxism is being pushed on kids to bring back Pol Pot. And why your work is buying, in buying Twitter, may be the last way to avoid genocide and civil war." End of quote. So does this mean that the populist right stole from the left the last resort of their resistance to the existing system, the popular attack on the seat of power? Is our only choice the one between parliamentary elections controlled by corrupted elites and Uprisings controlled by populist right, no wonder Steve Bannon, the ideologist of the new populist right, openly declares himself to be the rightist Leninist for the 21st century. Steve Bannon is part of a long journey, the migration of revolutionary populist language, tactics, and strategies from the left to the right. Here is a quote from Bannon. I'm a Leninist. Lenin wanted to destroy the state, and that's my goal too. I want to bring everything crashing down and destroy all of today's establishment, end of quote. So how to counteract this? Now comes, please, the difficult part. Listen a little bit of theory. In our contemporary apocalyptic situation, The ultimate horizon of our future is what? The French analyst of uh, 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 of, uh, catastrophes, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, D-U-P-U-Y. What he, Dupuy, calls the dystopian fixed point the zero point of nuclear war, ecological breakdown, global economic and social chaos, and so on. Even if this catastrophic zero point is indefinitely postponed, this zero point is the virtual attractor towards which our reality left to itself tends. So I don't believe that we who are deadly worried should still rely on this old pseudo-Marxist, I think, metaphor of the train of history. We are on the right side of history, and so on and so on. No, left to itself, today's world, history is moving towards a catastrophe. And the way to combat the future catastrophe is through acts which interrupt our drifting towards this fixed fixed point. How should we do this? If we are to confront properly the threat of a catastrophe, we have to introduce a new notion of time. Dupuy calls it the time of a project, a kind of a closed circuit between the past and the future. The future is, of course, causally produced by our acts in the past. But the way we act is determined by, by our anticipation of the future and our reaction to this anticipation. We should first perceive the catastrophe as our fate, as unavoidable, and then projecting ourselves into this catastrophe, we should adopt We should rather retroactively insert into its past, the past of the future, counterfactual possibilities. If we were to do this or that, the catastrophe we are now in would not have occurred. To put it in another way, that's my paradox. The past is open to retroactive reinterpretations, while the future is closed since we live in a determinist universe. This doesn't mean that we cannot change the future. future. It just means that in order to change our future, we should first change our past. Not, I'm not into magic, not in its reality, but reinterpret it in such a way that it opens up towards a different future. Will there be a new world war? The answer can only be a paradoxical one. If there will be a new world war, it will be a necessary one. Again, a short quote from uh, uh, Dupuy. If an outstanding event takes place, a catastrophe, for example, it could not not have taken place. Nonetheless, insofar as it did not take place, it is not inevitable. It is thus the event of actualization, the fact that it takes place, which retroactively creates its necessity. Let me explain this. Once the full military conflict will explode between the United States and Iran, between China and Taiwan, between Russia and NATO, it will appear as necessary, that is to say, We will automatically read the past that led to it as a series of causes which led to this explosion. If it will not happen, we will read it in the way we today read the Cold War of the 50s, as a series of dangerous moments where the catastrophes were avoided because both sides were aware of the deadly consequences of global conflict. What does this mean? And I will refer even to India here. There is an apocryphal, I know, but interesting legend about and lie. at that point the Chinese prime minister. When, in 1953, he was in Geneva for the peace negotiations to end the Korean War, a French journalist asked him, what does he think about the French Revolution? and lie replied, it is still too early to tell. In a way, he was right. With the disintegration of East European people's democracies, communist states, in the late 1990s, the struggle for the historical place of the French Revolution exploded again. Liberal revisionists tried to impose the notion that the disintegration of communism in 1989, at least in Eastern Europe, occurred at exactly the right moment, two centuries after 1789, French Revolution. So that they claim this was, this were the revolutionary 200 years, that time is over. But I think that You see, now, to open the way for a new future, which will not just be the repetition of the past, we are still caught in. We have also to reinterpret the past, to see how, no, the legacy of French Revolution is not something outdated. It still goes on. And also in India, you remember, you had the colonial uh, uh, colonial uh, uh, British rule, which I read books on it. I was deeply impressed at how they played a very dirty game, the British. Dirty game in the sense that they were not opposed to Indian tradition. You have that horrible book in your tradition, The Loss of Manu. All the precise prescription, how blah blah. Uh, the British colonizers reprinted it because they saw it clearly that the best way to dominate Indians is to keep them in their caste system. So to get liberated from English domination, you also have to reread, reinterpret your You are not just this inert, stupid state controlled by Islam, all the uh, liberatory movements from Buddhism onwards, and so on, and so on. Back to Chu and Lai. Now it seems that what most probably really happened is not uh, 1953 in Geneva, but in 1972, when Henry Kissinger visited China, he asked Chu What he thinks about the 1968 rebellion? 68, the Great May in France, and it is to this question that he replied, "It's too early to tell," and it was right. 1968 was a leftist anti-establishment rebellion, but its slogans against alienated universal education, for sexual freedom, and so on, were immediately appropriated by the establishment and enabled the smooth passage to neoliberal permissive capitalism. So, not to lose time. What does all this amount to?
1: Uh, How should we act? Some people
0: think that Neo anarchism offers a solution from Noam Chomsky to David Graeber and so on and so on. I disagree with them. Why? Catherine Malabou, a neo anarchist but very critical one, points out two problems. First, anarchism is becoming today a key feature of global capitalism. Quote from Malabou Our current epoch is characterized by a coexistence between a de facto anarchism and a dawning or awakening anarchism. The de facto anarchism is the reign of anarcho-capitalism, which is contemporaneous with the end of the welfare state, creating in citizens a feeling of abandonment. Just think of the state of hospitals and healthcare today. My contention is that current capitalism is undertaking its anarchist or libertarian term, a generalized uberization, uber, you know, taxes and so on, of life. Second point of Catherine Malabou, very intelligent one, I think. The anarcho-capitalism is the other side of new authoritarianism. Uh, Quote, Authoritarianism does not contradict the disappearance of the state. It is its messenger, the mask of this so called collaborative economic, which by bringing professionals and users into direct contact through technological platforms pulverizes all fixity. End of quote. Now, what this means is that the rising authoritarianism is the other side of the disappearance of the state. More precisely, of the most precious function of the state, that of providing public services. We thereby touch the vast domain of public services, healthcare, education, which cannot be provided just through expanding cooperatives and other forms of local self-organization. In his polemics with Catherine Malabou, Etienne Balibar makes this point clear, a quote from Balibar. If you look at the poor in American suburbs, mainly African-Americans, what they suffer from is the fact that America never really had a welfare state or a social state like France or Germany. The catastrophe for them is not that there is too much state. It is that there is not enough of the state, end of quote. So yes, popular mobilization outside party politics and state apparatuses is needed, but communities evoked by anarchists rely on a thick texture of institutional mechanisms. Where do electricity and water come from? What guarantees the rule of law? To whom do we turn for healthcare? So what is happening today? In the last years, Global cap, I think we should stop criticizing neo-liberalism, neo-liber- not because there is anything good in it, but because I agree here with my friends, like Yanis Varoufakis or Joe DiDin, that today global capitalism changed so radically that uh, something new is emerging, which some people, Varoufakis and Joe DiDin, Call neo-feudalism. The pandemic gave a boost to this new corporate order, with new feudal lords like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg more and more controlling our common spaces of communication and exchange. So I think that although I'm not ready to buy this term neo-feudalism, I think it nonetheless designates something very dangerous. Marx already spoke about privatization of the commons, but what he meant was commons, forests, and so on are privatized. One master gets this one, another one that part. But today, commons remain commons and are as such under private control. For example, Bezos, Amazon, almost had a monopoly on book, and other distribution. Bill Gates more or less controls software. Elon Musk wants to control Google, the main channel, which is a commons. It's a space in which we all communicate, exchange, and that space is privatized. And one should complicate even further the picture here. It is not just that the privatized commons are the space within which exchange and communication takes place. The ideal counterpart of neo-feudal privatized commons are precarious workers who can experience themselves as free entrepreneurs since, as a rule, they own their own means of production, uh, personal computer of a programmer, a car for an Uber driver. Precarious workers, although still a minority, are gradually, I think, becoming the typical, fundamental form of work in our societies. And precarious work has a double advantage for the predominant ideology. It allows you to experience yourself as an independent, small capitalist, selling your work freely, not a wage slave. Plus, you compete with other precarious workers, and this fact makes organizing solidarity between precarious workers very difficult. So, the ideal we are approaching today is a multitude of precarious workers interacting in a commons controlled by a neo feudal lord. The mystification is thus complete. Everybody in this ideology is a capitalist. Let's say you are an ordinary worker who distributes the food with your bicycle. They will tell you, no, it's just free competition. You decide to invest your little bit of money into, uh, into buying a good bicycle and you are free to work wherever you want and so on and so on. I think that in this sense, neoliberal capitalism is already dying and the forthcoming battle will not be the one between neoliberalism and it's beyond but between one or another form of this beyond. Either corporate neo-feudalism, which promises protective bubbles against the threat like Zuckerberg metaverse, bubbles in which we can continue to dream, or the root awakening, which will compel us to invent new forms of solidarity. Just slowly I approach conclusion. Now, what characterizes an authentic, emancipatory thought is not a vision of conflict-free, harmonious future, but the notion of antagonism which is totally incompatible with the right-wing topic of the need of an enemy to assert our self-identity. Here is, Here I'm opposed to Heidegger, Martin, although he was a big philosopher. Here is Heidegger's precise formulation of the need for an enemy from his course from 1933-34. A quote from Heidegger, but listen to it carefully. An enemy is each and every person who poses an existential threat to the Dasein being here, life world, of the people and its members. The enemy does not have to be external. And the external enemy is not even always the most dangerous one. And it can seem as if there were no no enemies. Then it is a fundamental requirement to find the enemy, to expose the enemy to the light, or even first to make the enemy so that this standing against the enemy may happen, and so that design our life, may not lose its edge. The challenge is to bring the enemy into the open, to harbor no illusions about the enemy, to keep oneself ready for attack, to cultivate and intensify a constant readiness, and to prepare the attack, looking far ahead with the goal of total annihilation of the enemy." End of quote. The most ominous passage here is, I think, this to expose the enemy to the light, or even first to make the enemy, so that this standing against the enemy may happen. In short, it doesn't even matter if the enemy is a real enemy. If there is no enemy, it has to be invented, So that people may be mobilized and can prepare the enemy's total annihilation. What we find here is the logic of anti Semitism and other racisms at their most elementary. Because what Heidegger ignores is the possibility that an enemy is invented to create the false unity of the people and thus cover up the immanent society's uh, antagonisms of a society. Why did Hitler need Jews? So that he could focus in an external threat, we eliminate the Jews, our society will be harmonious again, and so on and so on. But now I come to my final warning. The true danger of this Heidegger's stance is that he presents the invention and elimination of the enemy as a proper ethical stance. But fidelity to a principled decision, what we identify as an ethical stance, I don't care about my own interests, I'm ready to fight to my death for my cause, is not enough for an act to qualify as truly ethical. Sticking to a problematic principle doesn't help a lot in such cases, since the principle itself is wrong. Now, I will mention the most terrifying case that I know. Maybe you have others. Heinrich Himmler, the leader of SS, Nazi Germany, gave a speech in Poznan, today's Poznan, on October 1943, where he spoke quite openly about the... the glorious page in our history, and one that has never been written and never can be written. He speaks here the rhetoric which is today, I find it so dangerous, getting more and more popular. The rhetoric of elevating brutal aggressivity into true courage. The idea is, yeah, everyone can sacrifice his life for do good things for his country, But a true patriot is the one who is ready to do horrible things discreetly for his country. This is true love of the country. Uh, A quote from Himmler, you should hear it, it's a nightmare. To have gone through the extermination, extermination of the Jews and at the same time to have remained decent, that has made us hard. And now, Not a critical step, but just to make you aware of the manipulation. This was Himmler's problem. Nazi SS units had to do horrible things. Strangle, kill children, women, and so on. How do you remain decent? You know what was his solution? It's disgusting manipulation of your legacy. Bhagavad Gita. Himmler always had in his pocket a special leather-bound version of Bhagavad Gita. This is how Himmler uh, read this uh, wisdom of Bhagavad Gita, to act at a distance. You can do all the killing, just don't get identified with it. Again, I go on with a quote from Himmler. Our principle must be absolute. One principle must be absolute for our soldiers. We must be honest, decent, loyal, and friendly to members of our blood and to no one else. Whether the other races live in comfort or perish of hunger interests me only insofar as we need them as slaves for our culture. Whether or not 10,000 Russian women collapse from exhaustion while digging a tank ditch interests me only insofar as the tank ditch is completed for for Germany. End of quote. You see what I find horrifying here, and today's raising again, This stance that I cannot but characterize as ethical evil. Evil, not a simple uh, egotism. I rape a woman, I steal some money here, there I exploit. But a kind of a principled stance of evil. Like for the Nazis, Jews must be killed even if we all die in it. Uh, I think that this type of principled evil, ethical evil, evil which is ethical in the simple sense that it's a cause for which you are ready to sacrifice everything, (coughs) already at a formal level can be opposed to authentic struggle for emancipation. How? Uh, This struggle against enemy always aims at preserving our identity, allegedly threatened by the other. Like for the Nazis, German identity is threatened by Jews, by communists, and so on. But the main task of an emancipatory movement is to change ourselves, our own identity. Here, I'm approaching the end, don't be afraid. I would like to repeat to you a quote from George Orwell who clearly described in 1937 uh, the ambiguity of the predominant leftist attitude. Quote, we all rail against class distinctions, but very few people seriously want to abolish them. Here you come upon the important fact that every revolutionary opinion draws part of its strength from a sacred conviction that nothing can be changed. So long as it is merely a question of ameliorating the workers' lot, every decent person is agreed. But unfortunately, you get no further by only wishing class distinctions away. More exactly, it is necessary to wish them away, but your wish has no efficacy unless you grasp what it involves. The fact that has to be faced is that to abolish class distinctions means abolishing a part of yourself. I have got to alter myself so completely that at the end I should hardly be recognizable as the same person. This, I think, is still missing today. We have all these stupid, disgusting, fake conferences, like in Glasgow. You remember two years ago, Green World, and so on. But these are just calls. There is no none of this awareness that to redeem our world, it's not enough for us in the so-called developed West to give a little bit more help to the third world, but remain our way of life. No, our basic way of life will have to change radically. This is also, I will tell you to conclude, of a wonderful experience I had in India some 10 years ago, I think. I was there, and in New Delhi, I, I, uh, I met, I don't know what name, I forgot it. you have, the lowest sub-cast on the untouchables, those who clean dry toilets. And I asked them, what is the basic premise of your program? What do you want? And they instantly gave me a perfect answer. We don't want to be ourselves. We no longer want to be what we are. Here, radical emancipatory movement begins. This is why, be very careful. Now, at least in the developed West, a new tendency is arising of praising the poor people, but just applying identity politics. Like you have movies which portray, like the movie which I hate, Chloe Zhao's From two years ago, it got the Oscar. No wonder. It's the best film, Nomadland. It's not even critical. It's just the thesis is how even these nomadic proletarians without a permanent home who live in trailers uh, are decent people, full of spontaneous goodness, solidarity, small rituals, enjoying their modest happiness, and so on, and so on. No, I think that uh, I think that uh, uh, we. That's maybe the big thing we have to abandon this comfortable stance of making big demands and so on, because today's, at least in the West, you should teach me how it is with you. Today's predominant ideology, I claim, is cynical. Cynical in the sense that you almost say the whole truth, but you say it in a way which you know will not lead to any acts. Uh, For example, I already gave you the example of that Glasgow conference. They said many right things. We need to change our lives, blah, blah, greening. But nothing happened effectively. Youth. So, uh, you know which is my private target, the most disgusting thing? This modern art biennales in Europe, Venice, uh, Castle. If you read their programs, they are totally anti-capitalist. Yes, we are only slaves to capital, even the sphere of art, visual art is part of the capital. We are Eurocentric, blah, blah, blah. But as such, they worked, function. Perfectly within the capitalist system of commercial uh, of of uh, 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 of uh, of, uh, of uh, commercialized uh, art. So, uh, what we need is a much deeper analysis of where we are today. Just to really conclude, uh, I agree here with my German friend Karl Heinz Delvaux who claim that today, in, today, at least in the West capitalism, it is reasonable to speak no longer about masters and servants, but only about servants who command other servants. Nobody wants to be the master. Just some people claim we are servants of the people of the state, working for goodness, and so on. And here what comes to my mind is... Gandhi, of whom I'm otherwise critical, but he said something right. He said, the fate of the serf, servant, is worse than that of the slave, for the slave has lost only his liberty. But the serf is the one who became unworthy, unworthy of his liberty. So what I want to say is that although... We that even today's talk about catastrophes, it's very fashionable. All the movies, T V series, post apocalyptic, they are secret apologies. Did you notice how often global catastrophe is presented as a discreetly as a chance of a new emancipated society with more authentic relations and so on and so on? So even this Our obsession with post-apocalyptic societies is already caught in the ruling ideology. What we have to accept, we, all of us, and here I will be critical of some leftists in the West who like revolution, but ha-ha, revolution which happens at the proper distance, you know. When I was young, Vietnam, Cuba, name them, like... We love uh, Palestinians for some, I'm for them. What I'm saying is that the Western left will have to break this search for an authentic emancipatory subject somewhere else, far away. No, again, Gandhi said, and I'm very critical of him, how he related to caste and so on, but he said, uh, uh, be the change that you want to be. Uh, If you don't do it, there are no others who will do it for you. And we are far from this point. Thank you very much for your patience.
1: Thank you, thank you, Professor Zizek. Thank you for this uh, engaging, fascinating and informative lecture. I hope that with this, you mean that you are, when you begin,
0: sorry to interrupt you, but that's my evil nature. When you begin in such a nice way, it means that behind your back, you are already sharpening the knife, you know. Now comes but Let's go to the bat, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah. Um, Professor Zizak, I would like to know how much time do you have available for the Q&A session? Well, let's do some half an hour at least, no problem. Okay, if thank, you thank, thank you. Yeah. So, Professor, we have a couple of questions in the Zoom chat box. Um, and some of the participants they really wanted to ask question directly to you. Um
2: well. Okay. You start with one question, I think. You,
1: you read the, you select one question and then we go. Okay, sure, 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 sir. Uh Professor Shizak, this is a question from a participant called Udkarsh. And his question is that. Is the reinterpretation of the past possible in reality? By Sorry, is the real Is the reinterpretation yeah. of the past possible in reality? Uh, by what institutions and action do we carry out such a project? I will trying to answer uh, very very briefly. Okay.
0: Because otherwise, I talk too much. You know about this? <laughs> no, no. Uh, it's a very nice question. I I don't think we should uh, we should uh, we should even make a problem out of this. It happens spontaneously. With you know who knew this well, even Marx, but especially Walter Benjamin, who said that our struggle for emancipation today. Means that if we win, we will also redeem the past. Like, let's, uh, Benjamin meant, for example, these great rebellions of the past in Europe Spartacus' rebellion, uh, slave against Rome, uh, medieval uh, 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 serfs, farmers' rebellions, and so on. You know, all this will be reinterpreted as something that points towards what is happening today. In the same way that once you have feminism, it also reinterprets the whole past. Feminism doesn't say in this way, now we women know what are our rights, and then comes the, the, the disgusting uh, 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 historicist reactionary and said, yes, but we shouldn't blame people in the past. At that time, it was normal to have women half enslaved and so on and so on. No, in some sense, I think we have the right to interpret the past from today's standpoint. If you read the history of, of women from today's point, You find many, many signs of resistance and so on and so on. The whole past appears as much more open in a different way, especially for you in India. Isn't it that, for example, I'm in advance, I in advance apologize myself if I will say something that's not accurate, but the way I see is that, isn't the whole, I call it ironically, under the quotation marks, Narendra Modi revolution, based on a certain reinterpretation of the past, which is, I will put it ex- in an exaggerated way, is this formula: beneath every mosque there is a hidden hidden temple. <laughs> so let's just, uh, search for. It. So what I'm saying is that uh, don't underestimate battles for the past. It comes. It comes spontaneously. Every revolutionary reconstructs the past as much more open, in the sense of we were losing, but what we are doing now is just a culmination of what we were doing for hundreds of years, and so on and so on. And this experience is also very liberating in some sense. So again, I'm not talking about some exquisite theoretical sad books of reinterpretation. I'm thinking about, uh, although I don't always agree with it, about very, I'm not afraid to use this term, popular mythology. Think about, for example, uh, radical uh, radical, uh, revolutionaries in the 20th century in Latin America. They are, many of them directly refer to some progressive elements of the Inca empire, of other tribal traditions, and so on and so on. And I think it's too easy to say, oh, they are just projecting their dreams into the past. No, the past is open. The past is not fully determined. As Walter Benjamin saw it, Clearly, the the big uh, difference between uh, official history and our alternative history is that the official history, as we all know, is the history of winners. This w- group wins that another one, but we detect in the past traces of traces of resistance. That's why you know how I know that even the ruling class knows this. That's why, I don't know if this happens in India, but here in the West, those in power like to declare any radical movement as you live in the past, or you think we are still in 19th century and so on and so on, and then they go on. Today, there are no classes, we live in the free universe, whatever, and so on and so on. So my idea is that, again, past, Of course, not past in the sense of reality. I'm not into magic, but past in the sense of our today's representation of past. And this is for me even, I will stop now. I can go (laughs) for an hour. It holds even for the art. Look, (coughs) for example, the great guy. (coughs) I know uh, 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 I... uh, For me, your great writer, who is now in England, Salman Rushdie. For me, he is way too liberal and so on. But in one of his talks, I was in at a panel with him. He gave a wonderful answer. You maybe know it to the question of: uh, Isn't he? Didn't he sell himself too much to England? Didn't he forget about his Indian roots? You know what was his answer? It was no. Two Indian writers are the greatest influence on me, Jane Austen and Charles Dickens. (laughs) And then he said, I tried to read the poor in Bombay through Charles Dickens. I tried to read the fate of the lower middle classes, where there is a problem, how we will marry your daughter, blah, blah, not yet poor, but lower middle classes, through Jane Austen and so on. And I'm not saying... I not say my paradox is, and this is for me true multiculturalism, that sometimes this looking at a country from a foreign perspective, you understand it better than those people themselves do. I have here wonderful examples. For example, my, I'm sorry if you know it, for me, the best version of Hamlet, is Akira Kurosawa, Japanese from 1962, set in modern Japan, where Hamlet is, uh, not named Hamlet, is a rich rich Japanese student who returns home to his father, a boss of a big corporation, finds his father died, his mother is married to his evil uncle, blah, blah. But it works so wonderful that you see clearer, in a much more clear way, what is is at stake. Just this I wanted to say, that we need to rediscover the past.
1: Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Another question is about radical emancipation. Uh, So the question goes this way, does radical emancipation come from within the existing institutions and ideologies? Or from. So a is, new does form it come of... from after from? I lost you. Within. Does within. Come? Within. Uh, within. Uh, you within know, the existing institutions this. and ideologies, yes. or, or from a new form of institutional and ideologies. That's a very good question. You know why? Because this is
0: the big problem, and now I'm sorry if my answer will sound almost Stalinist, I think we should find, fight here right-wing and left-wing deviation. The right-wing deviation is that you say, oh, radical change is a utopia, we need to do it step by step, the long march through the institutions, and so on, let's be realists. Then, but there is also what I call left-wing principled opportunism you stick to your pure principles and whenever there is an actual revolutionary movement, you say, no, this is part of the ruling ideology, don't take it seriously. This is how, for example, my friends, many of them reacted to Syriza in Greece. No, that's nothing, and so on. Or even with uh, Morales in Bolivia, and so on. I think we simply... It's a very common sense answer that I will give you. I think we simply shouldn't accept this as a choice. Yes, we don't have time to sit and wait for the big, authentic revolution. As Rosa Luxemburg, a great Marxist, said, if you wait for the right moment, the right moment will never come. You have to do now whatever is possible in whatever way. I don't exclude violence. I don't exclude parliamentary action, whatever. I'm here for total opportunism. Look, whatever you say about Joe Biden, but within the United States, he is the most social democratic president that they ever had. He, uh, he, uh, Put some real money into uh, ecology, uh, helping the poor, healthcare, and so on and so on. Of course, it's very limited, but it would be totally crazy to leave the initiative to the right, you know, and to say, no, 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 let's not try, let's just uh, react. I think, again, my answer is a paradoxical compromise one do everything you can. Engage in all reformist gestures possible, but but with the awareness that at the end they will not be enough. So then why do it? I believe in this. You start with a small gesture which may appear reformist, but then you see, because the system is complex, interconnected, that to really do this, you have to change something more. It always goes a step further, and so on and so on. But at the same time, I mean very seriously what I said. We should be aware that, here I'm a moderate pessimist, that we are approaching really hard times, ecologically, militarily, and so on. and we should get ready for it. We should get ready to live in a state of emergency and state of emergency is not always a reactionary thing. We have this idea: people are moving the reactionary power into a state of emergency. No state of emergency is also what happened when a more radical Movement takes over. Of course, it cannot last forever. But I'm an absolute okay to end. I'm an absolute opportunist here. Do everything you can. Don't allow the enemy to determine your terrain. You know, like what would you want to do? This or that? You are inconsistent. Yes, my answer is yes. I will not pronounce the vulgar f u. Yes, I'm inconsistent. So what?
1: Everything that works. Uh, uh, next question is from Dr. Shibu. Uh, his question is that: How could one discern the subterranean link between identity politics and the apocalyptic growth of right-wing extremism? Uh, uh, sorry, between uh, identity how, politics and uh, yeah. identity politics and apocalyptic growth of the right-wing extremism. That's a very
0: good question, and I think there is a link. I don't know did the kind gentleman who asked me the question did he mean this in a critical way that there is no link? But I think that uh, identity politics is. Uh, In its bad form, of course, all the races, ethnic groups, religions should have their identity. But at the same time, it's vital for them to be aware of two things. A, that they never should just return to the identity that they lost. That to really emancipate themselves, they should reflect on how the way they perceive themselves is... Already the product of their oppression, so they will have also to change themselves. And secondly, never abandon universality. Every every identity politics should aim at universality. For example, I fully support homosexual, gay, trans struggles, but not in the form of their exclusivity. I support them in as they are one of the symptomatic points of what is wrong with our general, universal, predominant conceptions of, of, of sexuality, of universality, of freedom, and so, on, and so on. Because the big lesson we learned from Marx is that universalities are never really neutral. I accept this idea that human rights, okay, they are a great thing, but the way they are proposed by the West, you can see secret preferences in there, a certain form of individualism. Let me tell you a very brief story that fascinates me at this level. You remember, if you are old enough, I am, in, uh, when was this, Uh, 89 or when? The Tiananmen Square, you know, in China. For us in the West, the paradigmatic photo picture is, you remember that a guy with a gasoline tank or whatever, confronting alone a tank, approaching here. But then I spoke with my friends in China, and they told me, no, this is not a central image there. This is Western obsession, one individual confronting No, for them Tiananmen uh, was an authentic popular mass movement, and so on. This focusing on an individual is for them a Western misperception. see, This was our projection onto them. And this is for me today, that's my other problem of uh, identity politics. Would you agree that The worst form of racism is for me, racism which appears as its opposite. Racism which presents itself as respect. You know, Aldous Huxley, I don't like him as a writer, but he wrote a wonderful travelogue in the 20s. He traveled through India, Japan, and in India, he noticed something. Uh, Dean, he said how he noticed that these high-level British colonial administrators, whenever he met them, they were full of admiration of like we are of ordinary Indians. Now, we in the West, we are vulgar. We just exploit nature, industry, technology. But there is more spiritual depth in an ordinary poor. Uh, Indian farmer, and so on. This, for me, is the worst. This false respect for the other. Because uh, then uh, uh, Huxley adds that, uh, but uh, whenever these spiritual Indians rebelled, or even less dangerously, whenever ordinary Indians, wanted also to master Western technology and so on, they exploded. No, no, that's not for you and so on. They become very brutal. So, you know, isn't it the same also in United States? How? I spoke with some, okay, not Indians, however you call them. I don't like the term Native Americans, but them. they hate so much, these white liberals would come to them and say, oh, you are deeply connected with the earth, you live a more organic life and so on and so on. One told me uh, that a rich guy, progressive from Los Angeles living there in a big villa, came to visit them and said, I admire your spirituality, you live more holistic life. And he told this white guy, Okay, if you admire my life so much, then why don't we exchange places? Give me your rich villa in Los Angeles and come to live in my poor hut here without running water and so on and so on. You know, like, uh, the again, the, the most dangerous form of racism today is this. You know who used it, this, uh, this uh, uh, patronizing racism. You know that from my youth, I remember, I read... A propaganda book in English of South Africa, when there still was apartheid. You know how they justified apartheid? They said, if we finish apartheid, then all the races will mix, and what about those wonderful, small black, black tribes? They will be caught in our decadent Western world of technology. They will lose their original culture, and so on, and so on. Here I explode. You know, don't tell Poor excluded people how to live their authentic
1: lives. Uh, <clears throat> when well, um, Professor, a uh, candidate, uh, a yeah. participant, Vishal, he wants to ask
2: you a question. Yeah, uh, please. Uh, Vishal, yes, yeah. my question uh, to uh, Mr. Slimoyej is that uh, you, being a great admirer of Ellen Badu, you are in very much conformity with his ideas on uh, event, how it changes life and how it uh, <coughs> changes your whole viewpoint, how uh, you just for uh, come out of the uh, human rights, liberal discourse and you are yeah, yeah. two too, too for And you also uh, supported uh, Badu's support for Khmer Rouge uh, communist regime. So uh, I, I mean, But today, the ideological state apparatus, it is there for uh, most predominantly for the liberal uh, discourse. So the left and the liberal discourse, do you see them as antithetical or do you see there's a space to uh, reconcile them? Uh, Because uh, when they are being reconciled, the uh, liberal discourse is eclipsing the left. So where do you think
0: we stand now? Is it finished? Sorry. Is the question finished?
1: Yes, Yeah.
0: Ah, OK, sorry. Uh, again, an excellent question. It would take too much time. But let me tell you something, unfortunately. In the last five more years, I somehow lost contact with Badiou, because that's my point. He would have answered me, of course, in his own terms. When I mention these principled opportunists, no people who cling to some radical vision and dismiss all moderate attempts, he comes close to this. I remember when I supported Morales and so on in Latin America, he said, "He don't take them seriously. This is nothing Syriza. He said, No, this is nothing, this is nothing, and so on and so on. So uh, uh, for him the only authentic event, for him there were only two authentic events in the last 50, 60, 70 years. It is uh, the Chinese Cultural Revolution and its European version May 68. But here I disagree. I think that and he was curious when I once told him this, that for me, the, you know, so you do something and you never know what will be the ultimate result of this. For me, Deng Xiaoping, so-called reforms, introducing capitalism, was the ultimate result of the Cultural Revolution. Because the motto of Cultural Revolution in China was, let's erase the Confucian past against tradition, a new man. So they had a young generation, they deprived it of all this traditional legitimization. And the only thing that then, and as such as tabula rasa, they became open for new capitalism. He didn't like this. As for Khmer, rules, no, 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 let's be serious. I never, he even uh, uh, stepped back later and said, this was a mistake, and so on and so on. Though I, I, uh, I think it's interesting. I'm not dismissing what is happening now in China. I'm not saying uh, he, the new leader now, is just a totalitarian opportunist, whatever. They, I follow what he's saying, and some things are very interesting, like. He said a couple of months ago already something wonderful. He said that uh, maybe we should slow the growth to uh, to enable ordinary people to profit from our development more. There is a new accent on women's rights, even and so on and so on. It's not as simple as that, but nonetheless, I think that. Because I know in detail, I read some of his books. Wang Huning, he's the third person now in China. He's the main ideologist of this new way. And he openly defines himself as neoconservative. He said, we want American dynamic, but without the decadent side of the United States. So the idea is, let's have the reanimation of Confucian traditional values to keep capitalist dynamic under control. I don't like this formula. I think it secretly comes too close to fascism. Because, you know, the basic formula of fascism is conservative modernism. How to enjoy all the benefits of modern technology, but impose a traditional ideology on it of social harmony and so on, to keep it. So as for event, you know, where was our misunderstanding? Isn't it with Badiou, for him, there are times of events, big time, enthusiasm, and so on. And then an event runs out of its course. But for me, and for him, this was too pragmatic. He didn't accept it. For me, the measure of what of the degree to which an event really is an event, I wonder if you will agree, the measure of this is for me precisely what remains after the enthusiasm of the event is over, what remains in the everyday life. Here I even agree with Advocates of 68, which said that even some liberals we said that, okay, we can make fun of 68. It was a Maoist madness. Nobody took it serious. But nonetheless, like, uh, uh, after 68, a certain kind of open racism is no longer publicly tolerated. You cannot speak in a certain way male chauvinist about women and so on and so on. You know, this is, for me, the true measure of the event. After the event, when life returns to normal, let's see what did it mean for ordinary people. How did their lives change? And here I see a problem already in the October revolution. For me, as I wrote about it, the true tragedy was after the victory in the civil war, 22, 21, 22. Then it was the most difficult moment when Bolsheviks had to turn to these everyday things, uh, power relations, sexuality, how do you organize social rituals, funerals, and so on. And uh, they desperately tried to invent new forms, and it didn't work. You know that's that's the that's the tragedy. So I I'm never. I call this my Marxism of the morning after, you know, the expression, the morning after means you have a nice night of drinking whatever and then you you uh, awaken sober, uh, sorry, and but with a headache and so on. No, no. I say at the event, what happens the morning after when you return to reality? For this, I'm then accused of being too traumatic but they don't like this vision of history which focuses on big events and then what is in between is just ordinary way uh, ordinary everyday life through changes must be changes in everyday ordinary life um
1: so um
3: maybe one more interaction
1: okay sure sure so sujay wants to ask you one question sir Sujoy, are you there? Sujoy? Yes, I am
2: here. Sir, I just want to ask something uh, that the identification of self is now coming out of a medium that is being sold by the different communities. And now through it, are we perceiving who we are? We have lost our sense of individuality in the pursuit of this narrow, open-mindedness to learn the ways of society, we join different communities which entices us with schemes of individuality. We have lost yeah. the sense of individuality and the uh, identifying ourselves through the lens of the community. Instead of going through the, all of these complicated steps, we should start accepting ourselves and, the, uh, and our inherent individuality, untamed by the influence of the so-called community. <laughs> Sir, how do you think that counterculture will play against this role of uh, group and
0: communities? Uh, you know, uh, I am here an old Marxist paranoiac. I I never liked this terminology of you didn't talk about them. I know this small countercultures and so on and so on. I always ask myself to what extent they really. Uh, Function as a li- limited, open space where you can vent out, release your f- frustrations and enable the system to function even more smoothly. To give you an example, it's not counterculture. In my youth, I lived in a communist society. It was relatively open, everything was not bad, but at a certain point, those in power made an ingenious decision. They no longer uh, uh, they no longer uh, 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 put you to trial or whatever if you were telling dirty jokes against those in power. there was even a rumor that they fabricated themselves jokes not about the opponents but about themselves because the idea was you have to give to people some sphere where they their fury doesn't do any damage, but they can de- release their frustrations, no? So I was always suspicious, for example, about political jokes, and it's similar with, uh, with, uh, 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 with uh, counterculture, I mean. Yugoslav communists were much more intelligent. They supported, they tolerated drugs. They tolerated whatever you do, screw with dogs or whatever in sexuality, they, uh, 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 drugs, uh, uh, pseudo-Oriental thought, mysticism, and so on, pseudo. The idea was just to keep young people from politicization, you know. They were ready to tolerate many, many things. This, The mistake of Soviet Union and those more orthodox countries was that they were not ready to do, ready to do this. So about individuality, isn't, my God, this term today so misused? What does it mean to be individuality? So just to provoke you, I read, you know, is he also famous in India? That guy with whom I don't agree always, but he had one good insight. I think that what we are still in, because some, because, uh, sorry, uh, yes. what, uh, when there was that panic high point two years ago of uh, the of the uh, uh, omicron of the pandemic, he made he bunk bunk Yulchan or whatever something like that, the well known, who is now in Germany, South Korean theorist. He noticed how the fundamental part of Communal life is rituals of mourning. They enable you to socialize your pain and to go through it in an organized way. And how this was missing. I, I, I don't know again how it was with you, but in Europe, it was just people had outbursts, breakdowns, complaints, but there, was no, there were no ritualized forms to do this. So I think that, forget about individuality, we have more than enough of fake individuality today, maybe we will have to form new new rituals. For example, I often I was attacked uh, for making fun of those, uh, I met them in southern Greece you still have them in parts of Europe, but they are mostly as a tourist attraction now. I don't know how you call them. If you have this in India, women whom you pay to mourn for you, you know, like your father, blah, blah, dies. You are there, but women cry for you, do the lament. And I made, uh, and I made, uh, I made uh, fun. Ah, that's Rudali, you call it. Or, but I made fun. But then a friend from Romania gave me a wonderful answer. He said, no, it's not just hypocrisy. It's something nice. Let's say somebody close to you dies. You are too traumatized to mourn publicly. And it it brings an inner peace to you when, with the distance, you can see in this communal sense how others are doing it. For you. Paradoxically, you can mourn through, do the mourning, lamenting the dead. Through others, it brings peace to you because you are still too wounded. You cannot do it directly yourself. And uh, again, at least for me in Europe, the pandemic pointed out that we miss these rituals. You know, with this to conclude, you know, the the, the Hollywood producer, my favorite, Samuel Goldwyn of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. He was the most progressive, even for that time, and he was known for his uh, he was known for his gold, so-called Goldwynisms. Apparently, stupid statements, but they were ingenious. Like once he got from the press, sorry, do you know this story? Uh, 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 A guy brought him reactions to his films from the press, but they said there are too many old cliches in your films. No, and then he gave the order to his scenario department: "We urgently need new cliches." He was right. The opposite of cliché is not some crazy originality. This is for idiots. The true art is to organize new cliches, new clicheic formulas. And I love them. Like, let's say, again, here there are cultural differences. I don't know how it is in your country if it's quite the same. But let's say I walk on the street, and I meet somebody, and I don't like to meet him. But when we meet, nonetheless, I say, oh, how are you? Nice to see you. This is cliche in most sense. We probably both know that we don't want to meet. But somehow, it's not simply hypocrisy. This politeness, even if it's not sincere, works to bring, to produce safe social space of good rituals and so on and so on. Today, we live in a horrible time where everybody wants to express its individuality and then this is what I don't like also and then uh, the the reaction is uh, that all that counts is are you hurt like I say something the answer I get is this hurts hurt me and this is already an argument that I get often from some feminists from and so on and so on no I I don't like this direct reference to your inner feelings. I like a certain level of alienated, objectivized hypocrisy. It must have been a horrible society. Can you imagine it? When we would all the time be open to each other about how we feel, how I feel about you, and so on and so on. No, there is something very civilized in rituals. At the same time, I'm not an idiot. I know that rituals also imply certain social forms of domination and so on and so on. But then we need new plifes, new rituals. I think that rituals allow you the freedom of inner space. You are polite and so on, but you are not too engaged in it. Yeah. Uh,
1: thank you. Thank you, Professor. So uh, we have uh, a lot of questions in the chat box and... But slowly, slowly, I warn you, I warn you about this. Slowly, oh, sorry, slowly, story. Slowly, I'm I'm yeah. a little
0: bit tired, yes. Yeah.
2: But do you have so more let's time?
0: Do one, tomorrow. more. Okay, okay, okay.
2: How much more time would you give us?
0: Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like five minutes, I'm slowly collapsing.
2: Five more minutes, yeah. Maybe one more question,
0: Nitin. Okay. One or two, okay, yeah, yeah. But you are the Stalinist censor. You decide which question, no? No, 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 nothing works in every social interaction. Here I'm a totalitarian. There should be freedom, but not too much freedom. Somebody has to control it. Because yeah. otherwise you get idiots who pretend to ask a question, but in reality they want to make their own two minutes. <laughs> so, please go on.
2: But okay. here you, have to, you have to answer in five minutes. Now you are going to be Stalin here.
0: <laughs> no, you are Stalin. Or you,
1: up to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, so this is a question from uh, Suresh Tauravis. And her question is there. Unholy alliances in real life can be tricky to even channelize. So sorry, sorry, I didn't get that. Unholy un- alliances... alliances then- in real life can be tricky to even channelize. It can be tricky or what? To tricky, know? tricky. Uh, so at times, uh, like this, do we actually judge the ally based on the world about them or, or actually experience it? keeping it in a settlement I don't, I'm not sure I got uh,
0: the question right, but you know what's my point? <coughs> Why I talk about holy, unholy alliances? Not, there are no holy alliances, unholy. Some, I don't know how popular he was in India, Now, he still has influenced my ex-friend. And before he died, we split. Ernesto Laclau had this idea of hegemony and multiple discourses. He said that we live in a society where there are multiple antagonisms. Let's say we have ecology as one field. Are you for, against, do you think it's a problem, blah. Then we have... uh, Economic antagonisms, we have democracy, political, we have sexual politics, antagonisms, and so on. And for him, there are no holy or unholy alliances. There is always a battle, competition of different antagonisms, and there is usually one antagonism which became the predominant one. Today, it is, and that's the complaint of many leftists today in the developed West, it's uh, sexual and uh, 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 sexual and race antagonism. That's the big thing. And the class antagonism is more or less uh, ignored. Uh, so Laclau would have said, let's take ecology. Yes, it's an antagonism in the sense that some people claim it's not a real threat, other people claim we are approaching a global ecological catastrophe. But for Laclau, the way you link this antagonism to other antagonisms is contingent. For example, you have a, you can have a, a conservative ecologist who said the guilt is of modern industry. Let's return to modest, small communities. Then you have feminist ecologists who said this male principle of domination is the problem of it all and so on and so on. So uh, then you have even pro-capitalist ecologists who said, yes, it's a big problem but the only solution is to tax the products which hurt economy and solve it on the market in this way. For Laclau, there is no privileged Link here, and he goes even so far when you take like racism. He said, "Yes, you can link anti-Semitism to to working class. If workers can be convinced to prefer to prefer uh, to to project their hatred onto capitalism into the Jews and so on, It's deplorable, but." Nothing can prevent it. Now, I don't buy this. I think that behind, beneath all this plurality of antagonisms, there is what I call social antagonism of domination and exploitation, which is the crucial one. Which is why I still think that alliances, which are in this sense counterintuitive, like a leftist, supporting right-wing authoritarian and so on. We should keep them unholy. We cannot just say, yeah, that's one possibility and so on and so on. I'm an old-fashioned leftist. I think that although of course there are situations where social struggle for domination is not the big threat, like let's say, I'm even afraid to think about it, tomorrow we discover that there will be a big comet, mega danger, which will hit the Earth. At that point, of course, we can all come together and see how we can, at least part of humanity, how it can survive and so on and so on. But uh, but I claim that, and with, again, feminist struggle, my reproach to many of these Me Too feminists is that, They remain at a very superficial level, all this, you know, how you address a woman, and there are even many of them secretly anti-feminist. I don't know, again, that would interest me very much, how it is in your country. You know what is for me a true miracle? The Iranian revolt, which women triggered it. It's a... Social revolt but we or in South Korea, I admire their uh, feminist movement but, uh, but uh, uh, what i don't like in in uh, this uh, predominant form of the me Too movement is that it avoids these more basic questions about the the link between Racism, sexism, and social relations of power, economic domination, and so on and so on. I think it's always mediated between this and social and social uh, domination. This is why I believe in miracles no, no no, not religious <laughs> miracles, but miracles in the sense that life goes on and then unexpectedly something Happens. Although, for example, Iran, my Iranian friends warned me that there is a deep dissatisfaction in society. But nonetheless, when that women's protest started and they spread into general uprising, it was something unique. I believe in this type of miracles. So that's my view. We live in difficult times, in deep heat. But miracles happen. Never miracles. Again, my god. I'm an atheist. Miracles in the sense of out of concrete situations, something totally unexpected can can explode. Yeah. Uh, so Professor, uh, thank you
1: so much for this lecture. and. I'm grateful for
0: your patience. I'm grateful to you. Just Mm -hmm. give me some time and we can... uh, 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 In a couple of months, if you want, we can repeat it. You know what I propose to do? Because always I talk too much. Uh, I propose another form. What if I send you a text which you distribute to all the people and then we have just one hour, one hour and a half of live debate. So that sure. we can presume that people know the text. I will send you a text. I can risk it, no problem. It will not be widely available outside this. So people will get it, an original. I will publish it, but later. And then, you know, so that people can have the time to ask questions, because it's very sad when I talk too much and then at the end I, maybe I suspect myself, I'm also evil, that I talk on purpose too long so that then I can avoid too many questions, no? Like, you know what I do to finish an evil detail? When I give a talk at some American university where students, you know, Uh, bomb you after blah, blah with questions. What I do is I ask a friend to play a dirty cup for me. Students surround me that the friend comes and says, you are urgently needed by the dean up there. And then I can hypocritically say to students, I would love to talk all the night with you, but unfortunately, i must go." You know, I want to avoid this. And the only way to avoid this is that we simply jump directly into Q&A. And again, the only way to do this is that people already have, what do you think, the text. Maybe I just do like five, 10 minutes introduction. To remind them and then we have a debate, you know. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks That's... very much. And, and
2: that, that that way you're how... an...
0: Sorry, yeah,
2: I said that is opportunism also. It's a kind of opportunism.
0: Yeah, but good opportunism. I think there is bad opportunism. I, you know that I even claim that maybe there is good and bad corruption. Like I spoke with somebody close to Lula when he was before president of Brazil, and I asked him, what about all those things of corruption? He said, yes, because he didn't have a full majority. There were some small parties, and the only way to get through his reforms is to bribe these small parties. Absolutely justified, I, I claim no. It would be wonderful to do these stupid Marxist distinctions and claim that there is a struggle between progressive and reactionary corruption. <laughs> progressive corruption. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
3: Yeah, we have a,
2: a short a, you know, what of thanks. yeah. Please Sorry? Please stay. Please stay for a, for a word of thanks. A small few words of gratitude. Please stay.
0: Uh, yeah, but another thing, I got, I got your. Uh, doesn't mean anything. I got your beautiful present. Doesn't yeah, but, mean anything. Yeah,
2: it, it is used to decorate uh, elephants. So that is it. Oh, for
0: elephant. <laughs>
2: yeah,
0: well, I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, but well, I'll send you the details probably. Mm-hmm. There are so many listening to you now, so maybe I'll send you. Uh,
0: no, not the elephant. I'm afraid of being okay. So but what do I do now? There is some surprise you said.
3: No.
1: I go out. It's open. You, you just stay there, just stay there. Okay. okay yeah. Just for five minutes. So I I I invite Dr. Rajas Bastin, Associate Professor, Department of English, to propose a vote of thanks for this evening. Uh,
3: Professor Sizek, am I audible? Yes, sir. Yeah, it, yeah. okay. I see you. Yeah. Professor uh Professor uh, uh, P.J. Thomas, and all the participants, a very, I'm very happy to propose the vote of thanks uh, to this lecture as well as to this series of uh, centenary lectures that we have initiated uh, one year back. So, as everyone knows that St. Berkman's College uh, is celebrating its 100th year Mm -hmm. and uh, we have initiated this Centenary Lecture Series uh, with a view to commemorate uh, this 100th year and uh, with this lecture, we have come full circle to this lecture because back in uh, uh, 18th May last year, we started with Zizek and uh, now we are closing this lecture and we are closing our Centenary celebrations too with this lecture uh, and again uh, in a bef- bef- befitting manner with uh, Professor Sissing giving an animated uh, very eye-opening lecture. So thank you very much uh, Professor Zizek for your uh, wonderful. I mean, what I like about your lecture is the kind of sincerity and the kind of application that you have uh, uh, given into this lecture because uh, this was a lecture full of portable cords and uh, this could be, I mean, even though you claim to be a, a, an atheist, uh, it could be viewed from a very mystical point of view because many of the ideas that you have uh, uh, put forward here are actually articulated by many of the mystics also around the world. I I, am writing a book now about materialist theosophy linked to
0: mystics and so on. I agree with you. But can I say something to conclude? You know that I like dirty jokes, bad taste. So (laughs) I will make one at myself. You know the way described. you had me, now you have me again, you know. Doesn't this remind you like when you got, when you had me a year ago or when, you know, like you thought now we got rid of this idiot. Now I am back, you know, to what this reminds me. When somebody annoys me, a friend, I tell him, you know, you are a light, you know, when you have a, now comes the vulgarity, a water toilet, which doesn't suck well. So no matter how times you flush it, the shit comes back, no? So I hope this doesn't mean that I'm that kind of a shit for you. <laughs> you got rid of me and I came back, you know. Sorry, I cannot not answer with a I the only way for me is to finish with a loving vulgarity. Thank
3: you very much. <laughs> thank you. Okay. So thank you. Okay, thank so, you. so on behalf of uh, everyone um, who is uh, actively following this uh, group, uh, yes. I am very happy to thank Professor Zizek for uh, your genuine involvement with the uh, Sainbruchmans and yes. uh, this group who is um, who are following you very very ardently. Thank you very much, Professor Zizek. Thank you very much, really. and and. Uh, the last
0: question, this interests me. The last time I was in Kerala, they told me you were not doing so bad economically, no? Is it still going on? How are you now? The same.
3: Kerala. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we are
0: doing extremely well. <laughs> not... You are still doing well, no? Yeah, because yeah. I read that the communists who were in power in, uh, uh, in uh, Kolkata, Bengal, didn't do so well, No. Yeah, we are better. Anyway. You are
3: better still. Well, yes. I wish you all the best. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, okay, this is one one one, one second more. And yes. uh, I also would like to take this opportunity uh, to thank uh, Professor PJ Thomas, who has been instrumental in, uh, uh, in initiating this lecture series and uh, bringing uh, all the important uh, uh, scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, to this uh, program and uh, to the knowledge of everyone, to the, for the information of everyone gathered here, I would like to say that Professor P.J. Thomas is retiring this year in a couple of months and uh, uh, we are actually missing a giant of the department because it was he who has uh, given the international, I mean, who has continued to give an international face uh, to Our department at St. Berkman's College. And uh, under his, uh, I mean, when he was the head of the department, I think he has conducted more than two dozens of international lectures uh, lectures by um, great scholars uh, uh, in uh, different uh, areas of knowledge, uh, different areas of humanities. I'm sure uh, uh, St. Berkman's College. As well as the intellectual community, which is following uh, such lectures here with us, is actually missing a, a, a great scholar and a great adventurer, I would say, because uh, when I say this to my friends uh, in other colleges, they're actually uh, really uh, amazed at the kind of uh, connections that uh, Professor PJ Thomas is, uh, uh, Professor PJ Thomas. Is, has and how he puts that to great use for the benefit of the entire intellectual com- academic community in India. Because the other day, uh, some of the uh, professors, senior professors in other colleges called me and told me uh, to put on record their appreciation for Professor Peter Thomas, for the wonderful work that he is doing, not only for SB College, but because uh, I mean, uh, such uh, such, uh, such uh, entrepreneurial work that he is doing is benefiting uh, uh, the larger intellectual community in India. And uh, I place on record on behalf of everyone gathered here, the great service that Professor pajit Thomas has done uh, to the to academic community in India. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Thomas. Can I just add something very positive, no bad joke now.
0: Uh, Professor Thomas, but you don't look like you are close to death, you are alive. So if you retire, I hope that this means that retirement it means for you less bureaucratic obligations and that now you will be able to fully begin to work.
3: Yeah, uh, that's a great really advice. Right. That's a great advice, Professor Sisak. Yeah, <laughs> <great>. yeah. Because <laughs> uh, in I'm this going. part of the world, in this part of the world, when people retire, everyone thinks. When most of the people think that it is all over and the time is over. But uh, this is something truly great yeah. for Professor Thomas because he has a lot to do more. I'm sure. Thanks, uh,
0: My Best wishes for you. Thank you very much, and ah. hope to see you. It is not physically at least. Uh, ah, we should all applaud. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. in communism, the leaders join
3: applause. You know, like we are all people and so on. Thank you very very much. Okay, and I will I will, I will, I will you. pause within two minutes because I want to I want to I want to thank formally thank a number of people. Also, I will just. Uh, Uh, Finished within two minutes. Please please be patient enough. And uh, I am uh, very happy to thank all the uh, scholars who have been kind enough to uh, speak on this forum. Uh, In addition to Professor Cesar giving two lectures, we had Akhil Bilgrami and Laura Stoller, Christopher Norris, and Arjuna Padure giving giving, uh, other lectures in this series. In the name of everyone gathered here, I thank all of them uh, sincerely, and uh, I'm I'm sure the backbone of this lecture series is you, the 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 people who are following us, who who are part of this group. I am uh, from the depth of our heart. We sincerely follow this intellectual community who have been uh, uh, both a support and inspiration for us to undertake such great events. I'm sure. uh, uh, even uh, after professor uh, thomas is leaving we have uh, uh, we have other uh, e- equally competent uh, teachers in the department who have actually who are who have actually been inspired by professor thomas uh, to do this kind of work i'm sure you will be with us uh, uh, in the in the coming years too we will definitely undertake the proposal taken by i mean given by uh, professor Sisak uh, just now and uh, we look forward to seeing you all soon too and I should uh, thank all the teacher coordinators of our department of English who have been very kind enough to uh, coordinate uh, these uh, different lectures Uh, Professor Amal Thomas, uh, Professor uh, Dr. Teddy Andapai, Professor uh, Neville Thomas and Professor Nathan For coordinating these events uh, at different on different okay I mean at different dates on different dates, and um, I should also thank uh, all the technical uh, tech, um, all the technical help rendered by a, a, a Prino of the BTV Berkman's TV and uh, Tojo uh, who have been handling the YouTube link and all the communication regarding. Uh, the lectures, and uh, all the teachers who have been coordinating the Q&A sessions on these different meetings, and uh, people who have been responsible for designing the brochures and certificates, and the people who have, have been uh, responsible for uh, giving publicity to these events. Uh, and uh, I should also thank the the, the the management of St. Berkman's College, Father Reverend Father Manager, Reverend Father Principal, and uh, the Chairman of the Centenary Centenary Celebrations Committee, Professor Job Joseph and others, and all the members of the committee. I thank all of you uh, very sincerely for uh, uh, helping us in different ways to make uh, this Centenary Lecture Series a great success. And uh, I should also thank my colleagues in the department who have been instrumental in supporting these events in different ways. So thank you very much, teachers and our students so, once again, thanking you all, I remain. Thank you very much. One thing, sorry. I, something is missing for me in what
0: you said. Why don't you do this, what I call, Hegelian move of self-identification? Do you dare to include yourself? You should finish with, and I'm thanking myself for doing this and so on. <laughs> that would be the real thing. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bye-bye.